You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 628, when Louis Theroux met Pete Doherty, Top Gear crashes into history, Lauren Hill still needs an alarm clock, and Daryl Hall issues a restraining order against John Oates. And farewell Annabelle Giles and Shane McGowan. That's all coming up after Donald Fagan and the goodbye look. When this album was first released in 1982, I was presenting a show on local radio, and whenever I played any track from it, the phones used to go crazy with people asking about Mm. the album before we had Shazam and the internet, of course. Yes. From his first solo album in 1982, The Nightfly, number 44 in the UK, 11 on Billboard, Donald Fagan and the Goodbye Look. I love that album. And how strange you you said the sort of the, the plan for the podcast to me. The day after I had been listening to this album Ooh. with my other half, who wasn't familiar with it. We, we I found a, a couple of magazines. I was going through my old rubbish in my mm. flat, which there is many and various things, and found a lot of old music magazines, which is probably not a surprise, and found a couple of um sort of uncut type magazines from about 
2016, I think one was, and they had the 200 best albums of all time. So wow. we thought we'd work our way from 200 in, but only <laughs> using the ones that I had in physical copies. So there are right. a few we missed, but I did have that on vinyl and we enjoyed it very much. Obviously, I played a couple of songs from um, from it on my Smooth Sailing radio show, more of which mm. later. But um, yeah, we very much enjoyed it. And um, I enjoyed in lockdown, the heady days of lockdown when people recreated album covers. I did recreate Donald <laughs> on the cover of that album when I was on the radio. So, so it's an iconic photograph. I love that. And, and the album stands the test of time. It still sounds yes. great today. It's Very a great true. production. Yes, Welcome. it hasn't aged actually, unlike a lot not of late, early 80s stuff. Well, yes, or myself. Um, well, and me. <laughs> yes. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. It's mm. Parish Council, episode 628. <laughs> I'm Terence Stackham. And, well, the, the, the question's being asked all over the media this week. <laughs> Let's get the answer. With with the uh, lad baby stepping down in the race for <laughs> Christmas number one, is she going to release her own attempt at a Yuletide top single? Let's <laughs> ask Juliet Harris. Thank you very much. We wish you a Juliet Harris Merry Christmas. Yes. Woo. Uh, yeah, I think Wombling Merry Christmas. One of my favourite Christmas songs, by the way. What yes. a tune. Um, Deserves a makeover for the modern world. Yes, interesting that Lab Baby have, have withdrawn. Um, Yes, I, I'm not sure if I could express my views on this podcast, but um, yes. Uh, th- farewell, Lad Baby. Thank you for all of the irritating sausage rolls encumbrances that you've given us over the years. Um, I will, you know, as tempting as it is to tune up the uke and whack out a Christmas hit. Um, if I knew how to write a Christmas hit, City, I'd have written one by now because I could really do with another pension. So, so that would be that would be an, an, a nice thing. And uh, interestingly, the the, mag- the sort of online magazine emailer Pop Bitch made uh, the good point this week that streaming services have, and including streaming um streaming sort of listens in the in the uk charts has basically ruined the charts from mid-november onwards now mm. because it is just full of the same christmas songs but i think that's quite interesting because it does it is i suppose a record of what britain is listening to yes i suppose so but i noticed that myself from the middle of november wham and um, yes uh, what's her name oh Gosh, Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey. Yes, indeed. Racing up the charts from the middle of November these indeed. days. Yeah. Indeed, Mariah Carey's record and Wham's records, I think, for the sort of the, the longest time that records took to get to number one, because neither of those records were number one originally. At Christmas. No, no. So, and I suspect yeah. who we will come to later, Fairy Tale of New York, will have a yeah, run this year. I reckon. It certainly will. Um, I confess uh, right up front that I'm not hugely knowledgeable in it, to an in-depth degree about the work of the Libertine. Baby Shambles and your man mm. Pete Doherty. So it was a genuine open mind that uh, I watched, as, as did Juliet. Season two, episode mm. two of Louis Tarou Interviews, a series on the BBC. Um, and, and last week, the interviewee was Pete Doherty. Uh, much of the interview took place in Normandy, um, which mm. incidentally never seen at its best in bleak weather. Um, but the, the beauty of the architecture shone through, I thought. But very telling, I thought, that we came to learn that Doherty was living with his wife and baby in a house owned by his wife's parents. Mm. And we were gifted a further insight into his general state of affairs when walking through the town with Louis Tarou, mm. they had to swerve round a restaurant where Doherty admitted he hadn't yet paid the bill. So, um, Jules, as we, in Doherty's words, surveyed the artefacts of the shipwreck of his life in his Normandy atelier, is Pete Doherty just another heroin loser? Well, it's a fair question. So this is where I think perhaps the sort of gap in time between the two of us reveals itself, mm. as it occasionally does. Not often, because I consider us to be simpatico in many ways. But um, but in this instance, because I was um, so I was an enormous Libertines fan oh, right. back in the day. I really mm. loved their music and still do listen to it. Um, they're quite a divisive band. If anyone always refers to them as the effing Libertines in sort of one full, mm. he won't even even in serious conversation but um yeah their debut album i'm trying to look it up to see when exactly it did come out because i can't quite remember it was late 90s early 2000s Mm -hmm. um 2002 
So it was released in October 2002. So I was 18 years old and had just started university when that came out. And I was a huge Libertines fan. I had their single What a Waster, um, which on a C- I've still got the CD singles. I think it might be worth a bit um, before the album came out. So I was very into the Libertines very early on. They were heavily covered by the music press, which was still existing at that time, particularly the NME, which seemed to have a right. hotline to them and a kind of a almost tabloid-esque fascination with them. Um, I remember someone published a book in 2004 and me uh, talking to a slightly sceptical colleague at the time about it. And I said, oh, it says it's their their real story told. And he said, hasn't it been told every week in the enemy for the last three and a half <laughs> years anyway? So everybody's very preoccupied with the Libertines, particularly the relationship between Pete Doherty and Cole Barrett, who was sort of joint frontman, really. And there was always a great friendship and a great creative tension between them that you could, which just sometimes spilled into personal tension. So I was interested to watch this because I've been such a big fan and I I obviously was aware of Pete Tockerty's travails. I was aware of the um, of the Mark Blanco thing. The, um, right. There'd been a documentary about that on Channel 4 that I'd watched a few years ago. Um, so it was interesting to see. And actually, I thought that him and Louis Theroux were quite a good... It's good to see them both at once because they're both people that I don't quite know what to make of, if you see right. what I mean. Mm-hmm. There's, and they're both, I think there was similarity in between them, between the two of them in that there is this kind of faux, na- I don't know if their naivety is faux or not, for one thing. I don't know if they're actually on the level or not. Sometimes you think that it's a tool from Louis Theroux to get people to open up, which did work, actually, I think. And sometimes you just think he's a very awkward man. And it was difficult to tell with with Pete Doherty. Louis Theroux said himself it was really hard to square, you know, the the heroin addict, you know, the person that ran away from someone lying on the floor, you know, the 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 habitual heroin user, the unreliable person that basically got kicked out of his own band because he just couldn't turn up to places on time with this rather sort of kind of slightly melancholy but quite charming, quite gentle man that we saw on on screen. It was a very sort of peculiar thing. He was very honest and very open and spoke at depth about, you know, in depth and at length about the about the, the Mark Blanco stuff. And it was it was really it was an interesting watch this. I I found myself very engaged in it. I didn't I it seemed to go very quickly. I started watching it and then I paused it just to sort of look and see how much I was left. And there was only about 6 minutes left when I paused it. So it was 45 minutes in total roughly. So I found it very interesting and absorbing. Like you say lots of telltale kind of sort of bits in it like you know the fact that he owed the bloke money in the in the village, the fact that um the fact or the town of like a thousand people, you know, the sort of the, like you say, the mm. fact that they were basically living off the wife's parents, essentially. Yeah. But it was very and I thought that the, the footage of him meeting Cole Barrett and them going to play, that was in the whole thing was very interesting and a bit sad, I think, really. Mm. In the, and and but there was clearly uh, Doherty's talk about Cole Barrett and his behaviour. There was it was really interesting, I thought. So I found this a very peculiar documentary <clears throat> in that it was very it was very open. Yet there still seemed to be a lot of questions unanswered about what was happening. I liked Pete Doherty and I was just struck by the sadness of him, really. And the fact that towards the end, he basically said, I've completely ruined my own health. I don't know how long I'll live for. And they were talking about his very young daughter. Um, it, the whole thing was very... You know, his his he was very you know he he clearly suffered from serious addiction for a very long time, and it was an interesting insight. He was quite clear-eyed about how much it ruins your life. So it was it was a very it was a very odd documentary. It was hard to place how I felt about it really. I didn't like him very much. I didn't know much mm. about him, and ha- I'd never seen him interviewed before. And I thought he came across as a rather silly, immature, rude man. And I'll explain why I say that. Because first, I mean, the most obvious thing was mm. how rude to chain smoke cigarettes in a small room during the main interview. Um, yes, true. In, in I didn't he, even notice that, if I'm yeah, honest. It was just non-stop uh, one cigarette after the other and um, he seemed to be on the verge of both collapsing physically and bursting into tears as, you, as a very fragile mm. person yes. I, no, I didn't I didn't want him at all the, I, the way he said he had two more children quote technically 
um, was the word mm, he used. Which yes, is a, that wasn't good, I don't think. It's not good. And it's a son, it's, it's got a son age 20, whose name Dorothy is tattooed, has on, tattooed his on his neck, his yes. yes. And an 11-year-old daughter. He reminded me of Boy George when he first tried to persuade us he was sober. And I wasn't mm. sure how the term sober fitted with Doherty. Seeing the amount of booze he consumed during the programme, I mean, perhaps he means he hasn't tried heroin, crack or cocaine for a while. That is possible. Yes, he's off drugs, I think, is probably. Right. I thought I found him a very sad, morose man. And I did want to 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 uh, just focus on the point you made. The great still answered unanswered question is what happened on that night in December 2006, Mm. when Mark Blanco died falling from a balcony at a property at which Doherty was present. And as you mentioned briefly, he was caught on CCTV Mm. running past the dead body of Mark Blanco to run away from responsibility. And there are still multiple questions to answer about this terrible event in, in which Poor Mark Blanco's mother, Mrs. Blanco, it, you know, is still living living a nightmare yeah. day to day. But um, as a whole, like you, I found the time flew past. I thought it was a mm. fascinating documentary. Taru proved once again he has an elegant knack of embedding himself in with his interviewees and, and gaining their confidence. So it was a really fascinating 45 minutes. Mm, absolutely. Interesting. Louis Theroux interviews Pete Doherty. It's on the BBC iPlayer and it's available for the next year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can revisit it in six months' time and see how yeah, we Yeah, see what we think. Coming right up, inadvertent stars of record covers and the brakes are put on top gear. Mm. That's next after Lauren Hill. Girls, you know you better. Watch out. Some guys, some girls are only...
will of course discuss the um Yes. The recurrent recalcitrance of Lauren Hill and her um, her <laughs> unreliability seems to be unreliable rock stars seem to be a theme this week. I think yes. we will um, we will we will catch up with her later on on her latest exploits and things she has or indeed has not done. But um, I thought it would be good to remember her as tabloids would say in happier times. I love that song. I love the album it comes from the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Part of the issue is that she has only made one record. However, what a fantastic record that was one of the best albums of the 90s i think i love it and i remember that song bursting out of the radio great use of sampling on that and i think it is just such a such an effervescent song i love it do up that thing by lauren hill still sounds great and as you say we're mm. talking about the ongoing issue she has with the measurement of time a little mm, bit indeed. later on the, the one thing I really do miss about vinyl albums is the sleeve, being able to hold mm. a, a tactile object in your hands and study its link to the record. It was part of the whole experience. Um, the sleeve became a sort of emotional part of the whole thing of buying an album and then over the years cherishing it, mm. a bit like Linus and his blanket. Um, yes. The, the, oh, the, lovely. Yes. <laughs> I've now got visions of you clutching a copy of Tapestry as you go about your daily business. More true than I dare to admit. <laughs> um, there have been there have been times when unsuspe- unsuspecting people have been, have turned mm. up on an al- on album covers and become the interest of the media. And of course, people who own the album, um, you know, just, just by simply being in shot. Um, when what later became a famous fa- photo on an equally famous album. And mm. this is rather like Paul Cole, the American chap, who turned up in the background of Abbey Road, standing next to a police van. And mm. um, he was already 57 at the time, but he only died a few years ago at the age of 96, mm. having been able to show his children and his grandchildren his very brief moment of fame. And now this month, a mystery has been solved. Uh, Jules, we we now know the identity of the poor old fella carrying a great pile mm. of thatch on his back as featured on the cover of Led Zeppelin 4. But 50 years later, we find this out. We do. We've very helpfully got a historian to help us here. Um, this lovely piece by Dorian Linsky in The Guardian, uh, or rather The Observer, Musical Mysteries, the unlikely album stars who became modern pop enigmas. I love the fact his description here... Um, the uh, the sort of the fissure on top of um, uh, on the front of the Roxy Music album was called John Button. Um, and this is the chap on the um, on the Cure album, rather sorry. And uh, and uh, he says the man featured on the album cover was not a member of the Cure. Wikipedia helpfully notes. Thanks for that, Wiki, <laughs> as always. And it also says part Michael Parkinson did not play with Wings. No, he did not, despite being <laughs> on the cover of Band on the Run. Neither did John Conte, I think. But anyway. Um, uh, he says some mysteries harder to solve. Um, so it's also um, Led Zeppelin for also dubbed Zo, um, Zoso after the occult runes on the cover. The old man in the middle of the the record bent double um, with branches. Um, uh, the historian Brian Edwards chanced upon the original photograph whilst researching another topic and he's uh, seemingly identified the man as Lot Long what a name, a Victorian Thatcher from Wiltshire and the photographer is a rather aptly named Ernest Farmer, god that really is (laughs) (laughs) he was never going to photograph cars was he, but anyway um, it's up to you as to whether or not this is enriching the artwork that we now know who this is or whether it spoils the enigma, it's a little bit of a um, yeah it's true, it's a little bit of a a two-all thing here, it's very um, yeah it's it's, uh, interesting isn't it Um, it says here um, some artists are lucky enough to know the right faces this idea of if you're um, using a face, it's a very arresting figure of face, isn't it? When you've got it on an album, so particularly if it's not the band, it does immediately um, spark interest, I think, a mystery and intrigue. And the same way as people do judge books by covers. I do. I wish I didn't, but I do. We were in a bookshop recently and I was drawn to certain covers and not to certain yeah, other covers. And true. I think the album sleeves are probably the same. Yes. Um, for example, you know, the, all of the various faces on Some Girls by the Rolling Stones. And the example given here, a big album from my youth, 
the bleary-eyed cigarette smoker on the Arctic Monkeys debut album um, is the band's Sheffield acquaintance Chris McClure. The doe-eyed child on U2's album's Boy and War is Peter Rowan, who was the younger brother of a friend of Bono's. Um, Morrissey used a lot of old images for the mm. um, for the Smith stuff. It's really interesting. Look, it's interest. What causes unease, I think, for this is that legal permission is required very often only from the photographer or the rights holder, not the person in the photo, which is rather. Um, I didn't which know is, that. Yes, mm. I didn't know that either, and it's rather can cause unease because it means that you become you become a bit. Um, you become a bit sort of famous without having any control over that. Yeah. So, for example, the, the speaking of the Smiths, the Marine Michael Wynn, who was photographed in 1967 um, with a, a helmet on, with a message on the side, the message was changed on the side via, I presume, what was the equivalent of Photoshop back in the early 80s, to meet his murder and used on the front cover of the Smiths album. Michael Wynn said in 2019, rather belatedly, he wasn't real happy, quote unquote, with having the slogan on his helmet changed from make war, not love to meet his murder, which one wonders. Well, you know, that's not exactly ideal. Um, and the former model Anne Kirsten Kennis sued Vampire Weekend and their record label for two million after the band used a 1983 Polaroid of her on the cover of their album Contra, which came out in 2010, claiming that the photographer who licensed it had not, in fact, taken the photograph. She mm. says, and I think this is very interesting, actually. It felt like someone was exploiting me, she said to Vanity Fair. Who do these people think they are that they can just take my picture from God knows only God only knows where and plaster it everywhere? The suit was settled for an undisclosed sum. And there's also the Nirvana baby that keeps popping up. One minute is threatening to uh, one minute is threatening to Spencer Eldon. One minute is making money out of it and recreating the photograph as an adult. The next is then suing Nirvana for use of his image on the front of <laughs> Nevermind for alleged child sex exploitation. It's been dismissed twice the suit, so it's interesting. It is. I mean, um, well, I, I certainly <laughs> can see that Spotify doesn't give you that wonderful uh, experience that a no, not really. album sleeve can. And I, I don't know whether, I rather suspect, I don't know, I have no evidence for this, but I rather suspect that far less effort is put in these days to sleeves because of the reality that record companies and bands would know that 95% of people these days are are not going to hold a 12-inch version of it while they're no, listening to the music. although there is a small renaissance. And, and oh, it's indeed, yes. To see, well, I think it's more than good. small now, actually. So, so it'd be interesting to see if that continues. Ever since... Um, Ever since Jeremy Clarkson landed one on the nose of uh, Top Gear's then producer, it feels like it's been a downhill spiral Mm. for Top Gear. Clarkson May and the other one went over to a renamed show, The Grand Tour on Amazon, where there's Mm. money to burn, of course. But meanwhile, the BBC carried on with the disastrous pairing of Chris Evans and Matt LeBlanc. And this was followed by an equally odd setup of cricketer Mm. Freddie Flintoff and comic Mm. all-rounder Paddy McGuinness. Mm. The BBC Jules, they're, they're, they're um, believed to be saying that Top Gear is now paused, but surely that's the end for what is now a deadbeat show. Yeah, it doesn't seem to, it, it seems to have it seems to, if you pardon the pun, Seti, run out of road here. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, thanks very much. Um, yeah, it just doesn't, I mean, it, it, it felt like a, so Top Gear People forget that Top Gear existed before Jeremy Clarkson and Co. And was always a rather sort of solidish performer on on BBC Two. I remember being very entertained as a child by watching one where they went to a caravan destruction derby, um, which was just demonstrated. I had I remember saying to my dad at the time, I had no idea caravans, not motorhomes, but caravans. Yeah. Those caravans were so flimsy up until yeah. that point. They're basically made of MDF, as we discovered <laughs> so when we watched this caravan yeah. destruction dog, which, of course, is incredibly irresponsible. It was also really quite funny. And I think the Top Gear for ages and and particularly sort of heightened when Clarkson Co joined was quite good at being a mix between sort of interesting an informative magazine program but also being on that boundary of sort of fun and anarchy um and it's interesting so Richard Hammond was involved in a very serious accident 
And it took him some time to recover. And I think that knocked the winds out of Tokyo's sails. And then, of course, Clarkson's behaviour, then getting them booted off and, and, and going elsewhere, like you say. And then the BBC's attempts to keep it going. Didn't, yeah, Chris Evans's weird appearance on it as well. The whole thing was very strange. And it seems to me, like like we've talked about previously, that sometimes the BBC is quite good at innovating and sometimes it's not very good at realising that the world has moved on. And I, I'm i not sure people are really very interested in Top Gear anymore. I think that the the struggles to, to keep it going after Clarkson and co left, for better or worse, it had kind of become their programme, really. It's very strange to think that this, this odd... It used to be on, on Saturday afternoons, I think, on BBC Two, that this, or, or on Thursday evenings. It's very strange sort of, you know, funny little programme presented by Tiff Needle, amongst other things, then went on to be, you know, then went on to be a, a, a big old thing. I think it's probably done. I think that, and also, given the mood of Britain at the moment, given, you know, that lots of people are not having a good time, to put it mildly, I'm not sure if these brash, exuberant antics are really sort of playing anymore. And, of course, the serious injury to Andrew Flintoff, and we wish him well, obviously, um, that was obviously serious because you didn't hear anything about it for a very long time. And then footage was seen of him warming up with the, as a coach, I think, or as a sort of an advisor with the England cricket team in the summer with obvious damage to his face. Um, It's, it's weird because it's been a big money spinner around the world. So I'm slightly surprised that they are ditching it or at least pausing it for the foreseeable because um, the sale of the sort of rights to Top Gear around the world was always quite a big source of income for the BBC. I presume it's less since Clarkson Co left and maybe that is a factor, I don't know. But um yeah, I, I it seems to have, you know, seems to have lost its path really, doesn't it? And and the serious things happening sort of leave an unpleasant taste. No, you make a very good point, actually. I, I hadn't looked at it from that point of view, but I do believe that the audience for car shows is shrinking. Mm. Um I mean just even from personal experience, I think that young people just aren't interested in cars. I mean, if they, if they own one, it's to get them from here to there. And mm. um, they, I, I don't think people anymore really have that sort of interest in speed and talk and how many cc's have you got and all that sort of thing. And of course, many young people, especially in cities, don't bother with a car at all these days. Mm, uh, absolutely. And I, I also notice much more responsibility about drinking. Most young people I know leave the car behind if they go to a party. Yeah, or exactly. So there's a diminished. Or if they drink at all. Well, well, quite yes. That's also a growing trend. Yeah. It's, it's just, I think, a diminishing audience for for car-based hijinks. Mm. So uh, I agree with you. It's toodaloo uh, to Top Gear. Indeed. So more to come, including as we previewed, Lauren Hill. She's still at it. Um, I can't go for that restraining order. And farewell uh, to Annabelle Giles and Shane McGowan, all to come after this new track from Cleo Soul. Little bird, don't cry. No, you heard your wing when you fell outside. Some will cheer, the flight is over. And doubt give grace, but don't you Keep holding on, fly high 
a fabulous voice so she, she released two entirely separate albums in september this year which is the sort of output that would give kate bush the heebie-jeebies um, this track is from the first of those two both albums are wonderful it's full of neo soul 70s soul jazz and, and a touch of Joni mitchell um from the album heaven cleo soul and airplane really like that really good new artist very much so, yes. And um, she, she's, I think, released four albums in in total. And um, I've listened to them all. They're all just absolutely lovely. Um, exactly five years ago, as we record this, we discussed the then habit of the otherwise superb Lauren Hill of mm. turning up woefully late for her own gigs. Um, we, 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 we talked about, as I say, five years ago, exactly this month, late, not just a few minutes, uh, over an hour late, we, rec- we reported in Brussels, mm. over two hours late in Paris, meaning she could only undertake a 30 minute set. And those people in Brussels got 40 minutes before the curfew. And a year even before that in Pittsburgh, she rocked up three hours late and she mm. said back then that she has and i quote a challenge aligning my energy with the time Which <laughs> I, I, I think many teenagers so might identify with I that i was gonna say i i'm not entirely sure i don't identify yeah, with that a little bit to be honest i might have put that on my email auto replies <laughs> i will come back to your email as soon as i can but occasionally i do have issues aligning my energy with the time, the time that's really yeah. good if we sort of scroll forward to this month, December 2023, surely she's older and wiser. No. After turning up eye-wateringly late for a show in Los Angeles last week, she said to the crowd on stage, you're saying she's late. Yo, you're lucky I made it on this stage every night. Um, so, um, George, George <laughs> I, I, I noticed she was playing Philadelphia last weekend. And when I checked, there were hundreds and hundreds of tickets available at mm. cost price from $54.50 to $264.50 which is right in front of the stage. So if you're in the mood for a gamble, head to one of the gigs on the, <laughs> the rest of the tour, Jules. Although how interesting that there are plenty of tickets available. Yeah. I wonder, and, and, and my apologies to everybody, he's come up yet again on the podcast this week, but old Morrissey, he found himself in a similar situation where he would be touring. And aside from his views, his, his political views, which have put a lot of his original fan base off from him, we can't shy away from that. Um, Additionally, I've got friends that stopped going to Morrissey even before all of the Britain First stuff because 
that became like a form of gambling as well because he kept pulling out of gigs he wasn't well blah 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 and eventually even a diehard fan base will think you know what i I haven't got the time. My energy does not align with Lauren Hill's timing. You know, I don't really want to want to turn up to someone that isn't going to be there. So maybe there are plenty of tickets available because most people have gone, oh, do you know what, sod yeah, this. Yeah. And I've, it's very interesting as well that I'm surprised people have been so patient with her for so long. Because as I said earlier on, yes, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill is an amazing album, but it is very much the only one she's made. There was a follow-up, which was an, um, an MTV Unplugged record. And I'm not, I mean, I want to like Lauren Hill because I like her music. I'm not sure how much connection with the real world there is here. So this is, she has discussed her career on the stage when she had this very long rant about how you're lucky I'm here, et cetera, et cetera. This is currently on the miseducation of Lauren Hill's 25th anniversary tour, which makes me feel very old, um, alongside the Fugees, who blessed them and clearly worked out where, where the, and how interesting that she was originally famous for being in the Fugees, yet critically it's her solo album that seems to have endured, really. But um, yeah. she was quoted as saying, when the album sold so many records and no one showed up and said, hey, would you like to make another one? So I went round the world and I played the same album over and over and over and over again. Did the, did the thought not occur to you, Lauren Hill, that you could make you could make a second album? I, I don't know why someone had to turn up and tell her. I'm sure someone probably did. It sold loads and loads and loads. You'd think the record company would have wanted another one, wouldn't you? I, I suspect they probably did feel like that. It seems she had to cancel the Philadelphia show, by the way, in the end, because she was told by physicians to rest her voice. Um. I'm not convinced she's been using it that much, but anyway, she she apparently was unwell and had to had to oh, uh, okay. had to sort of cancel that that question. Anyway, so it turned out there were lots of tickets available in the end because she uh, she didn't do it. Um, it's very lots of um, she's very rambling in what she says. It seems very strange to me. Um, she claims <laughs> she's claimed several times that the label never asked her for another record. <coughs> <clears throat> excuse me i feel this is very strange i think i feel there is i feel there is an um story behind this i'd be interested mm. to see what the record company says here i wonder what the situation is i must say well, i think it's, it, i think that, that this whole business of her timekeeping is absolutely preposterous and she should be mm. ashamed of herself and I, yes. I think this sort of behavior went out of fashion with keith richards at nebworth mm. in the 70s you know imagine traveling miles even staying overnight to see lauren hill and she does 30 minutes after you've waited in the hall for two or three hours i think it's absolutely terrible uh, there's, there's no excuse Agreed. For it. And also, you know, she got booked to do the Love Supreme Festival, I think, a few years ago. And um, I think was a bit late for that and came on to a very ponderous jam and everybody left, if I remember correctly. Oh, God. Well, we've looked at high-profile uh, fallouts over the years. The Gallagher's, of course, UB40, mm. Gene Love, Jezebel, Simon and Garfunkel, the Everly Brothers. I thought that Hall and Oates were having one of their periodical breaks before they often yes. do reuniting, touring the world once more. Then comes the news this week that Daryl Hall has issued a restraining order against John Oates. Man. Private eyes, they're watching you. They see Indeed. your every move, Jules. Oh, man. I mean, although I like the fact, I'm glad it was that order because it makes it easy to remember that it's Hall versus Oates, isn't it? I mean, they, they always seem to be been destined to be hauled and oats, don't they? Thank you for suing each other in the right order is all I can say. But yes, <laughs> very strange business this. Um so um it's it's very it's uh, so there's a lawsuit. We don't really know what the legal constraint is. Um it was what filed earlier this month. What must, what John, it doesn't say, what must he allegedly have done no, exactly, to have had know. a restraining order? Well, this is it. So the restraining order is coupled with the lawsuit. So we don't know what the lawsuit is for. We just know there's a restraining order as well. Um, Hall has had some solo albums, which included two top 40 singles, but everybody knows Hall and Oates as Hall and Oates, I think. One of the best origin stories of all time, I think, and therefore somewhat sad that they've now turned on each other, was they met in 1967 
while escaping a shooting between rival gangs near Philadelphia. Philadelphia's coming up a lot in the podcast this week, isn't it? It, it sounds like a very chaotic place. Anyway, said to a service elevator with their respective bands at the time. Then they became friends and then roommates and their music partners. And the reason they are called Hall of Notes is that is the order it was apparently written on their doorbell, dub buzzer and mailbox for the flat that they shared. Uh. Um, Hall told the Times last year that being part of a music duo is, quote, quite annoying, unquote. He said, I don't like it. John and I call our touring company Two-Headed Monster because it is that. It's very annoying to people to be a joke because people always say, oh, you're the tall one. You're the short one. You're the one that sings. You're the one that doesn't sing. It's uh, you're always compared to the other person. It seems, you know, I am not. I'm not you, Seti, and you are not me, really. And so he's been complaining about it for some time, I think. Um, and they've always been rather sort of um, always kind of. There was a, a, a podcast hosted by Bill Meyer called uh, Club Random. What a great name for a podcast. Maybe we should call this Club Random and then they can sue us. But um, um, he asked why they weren't sort of duoing, to which Hall replied, John and I have a long, long history together. And we are brothers. We really are. I will never negate, ever negate that. But we are very separate. However, he does seem to have negated that. I think the suing someone is probably negating your brotherhood, I think. I, yeah. I feel that that fits that definition. Um, uh, it was very strange. Um, I, I, you know, it's one of those things, how have they fallen out so badly? We don't know. But I think I'm very much sort of hanging on. I'm very sorry that Hall can altogether now no longer go for that. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I really hope that they... Um, that they do manage to reconcile. But if they don't, I hope that we hear more about this because at the moment it's just, it's we've been tantalised with this kind of falling out to hear about, but we don't know what it is. Very sad. I mean, you, you mentioned um, that they got together in 1967. I just did a bit of rudimentary mathematics. That's 56 years mm. um, of, of being together. So it's so sad at this late stage of their lives and careers that it's mm. come to this. It, Often seems the closer duos are, the greater, the more apocalyptic mm. uh, the breakup. Well, it was sad to hear um, of the relatively early death at only 64 of the presenter and actress Annabelle Giles. Oh, very and much so, yes. You, you have memories of working with her, Jules. Briefly, yes. So years ago, when I used to do a bit of stand-up comedian, I uh, entered Funny Women, the heats in Brighton, and... Briefly had the pleasure of hanging out backstage with um, <clears throat> with Annabelle Giles, who was also doing some stand up herself at that point, and um, and Miss London, London Hughes. Um, they were excellent company, the two of them, <laughs> and they drew the raffle together. I seem to remember, and very much were chalk and cheese. Were extremely funny, and I remember Annabelle Giles being very kind company backstage. She didn't have the best of times, and she was keen to tell me when I came off stage about her two favourite things that I'd said, which I was very, sort of, very pleased with. That was very kind of her. I thought she was charming company. And um, I sort of followed, so I sort of followed her over the years, really, because I'd like to say, I knew who she was. I remembered her. I, she was very much a staple of 80s and 90s panel shows because she was very, as well as being very beautiful, and she started off as a model, uh, I think, mm. she was also extremely funny and extremely quick-witted. And I remembered her from Win, Lose or Draw that was on for several series oh, on ITV. Yes. They used to show that in the mornings, and I used to end up watching it in the school holidays. I think when This Morning was on a break, it used to be on. And... Um, and she was excellent on those. And I, so I remember that from that. And I followed her sort of career. And she seemed to be able to turn her talents and her mind to a lot of things. She wrote books that were very successful. Um, she uh, she was excellent, I think. And and I she, everyone, I know that when people pass away, everyone is always very quick to be very nice about them. But I know a lot of people that knew her personally, that very much valued her friendship and her talents. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry that she's gone. I'm sorry that she passed away. A friend of mine shared a photo of her from her personal Facebook. She, she retrained as a psychologist in recent years. And that, and a therapist, and that's how she was working. And she had a lovely photo that I think shows her excellent sense of humour. Of a cover photo on Facebook was a shot that somehow been taken by someone at the back of a room, and the way that they were both seated, she did appear to be interviewing her own cat in a psychotherapist <laughs> sort of thing because she she was facing the camera, and you could just see the back of a cat's head that was sat on the sofa, sort of opposite her. I thought that was excellent. I I liked meeting her. I'm sorry I didn't know her better. I think she would have been a lovely friend. She was a very talented woman, and I'm so sad to hear that she's passed away. 
I met her once only. Um, I was invited to a charity cricket match at Bray in Berkshire, mm. and she was at my table for lunch, and she seemed very cheery and uh, pleasant. But what I did notice from the balcony, um, I watched her go round the crowd. She'd volunteered to sell, uh, again, like like those lads, she was selling raffle tickets for the, mm. for the charity. And she, she just entered that task with such little gusto. <laughs> and she was going around chivying reluctant spectators to reach into their wallets and purses. Uh, and um, I'm sure raised a, a, a lot of money. She was a very lively character. So all best wishes to her family, especially her daughter, who's 36, and her son, of course, only 12. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so, so sorry to hear that. And I'm a big, a big fan of um, um, a, a friend of mine that uh, re- recollected she used to do. She was a very good Twitter user and sp- sticking on the sort of raffles and, and charitable raising. She used to do raffles for comic relief, which would often involve her own personal effects and be quite bizarre. The <sighs> used bottle of perfume was quite popular, yes, I seem to remember. And um, also she, a, a friend of mine won her slippers and teddy bear as well so uh, so uh, the the indomitable spirit of annabelle giles uh, yeah. we need more of her sort not less i think well also shane mcgowan died this weekend in its obituary the irish times describes him as an outsider who became one of ireland's most fated sons and this mm. would have seemed the most unlikely outcome to those of us who were around the early days of punk and remember Shane mm. as a sort of rather rumbuctious, annoying young bloke who used to throw himself around in a sort of maniacal mm. fashion at just about every punk gig in London in 1976-77. Of course, what we didn't know was that under the under this alcohol-fueled madness was a, a privately educated young man with fierce mm. Catholic principles yes. and a, a love of words, poetry, language from mm. reading Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, Dostoevsky at a very young age. What a journey, Jules, from being sent down from Westminster School to seemingly a, a national treasure shared between Ireland and the UK. Absolutely. It just goes to show, doesn't it, how... Everyone has multiple lives, don't they, I think, within the same life. The journeys that people go on are incredible. And I don't necessarily think, in the past, I would have thought that, you know, punks like him and, you know, some of the other punk figures like Joe Strummer, who are public school people, in the past, I might have frowned on them for being inauthentic. And the older I get, the more I realise that life often involves into really strange directions that are unexpected. And all of us are multifaceted. So actually, I find it so interesting to hear about the different sort of eras of people's lives Shane McGowan and the Pogues um I I you know I just what what a force I want a force and things that you learn when people pass away and I think it often takes the death of someone the death of someone can reveal things about people that are still living I think and people that you know I had no idea that a friend of mine had gone out with Shane McGowan for some time in 1984 until until she posted a lovely photo of them together yesterday and um I think this is such a lovely, this manages to be a short story from Threads, one of the Twitter sort of replacements, uh, from, uh, of all people, Joanne Harris, the author of Chocolat, amongst other novels. Um, A short story in five sentences. I met Shane McGowan at the WOMAB Festival in 1984. He was drunk, flanked by groupies and seemed ecstatically happy. He said he liked my shoes. I was barefoot. All right. That's so perfectly put. And just incredible energy. And I remember, you know, obviously, aside from the Pogues, Fairy Tale of New York is what most people, I think, perhaps casual music fans know him for. And I suspect that will be number one this Christmas now. It's always in with a shout anyway, but I suspect people will buy it. And so they should. It's a wonderful, wonderful record. And, um, and I remember when Kirstie McColl, because the other singer on that record, passed away. And I remember talking to a friend's dad at, um, at a New Year's party who said, honestly, you wouldn't have put your money on him outliving her, would you? And so the fact that Shane McGowan was was still alive, despite having lived the life that he did, uh, you know, despite having been blighted by alcohol. And I think we can say that. I think that that although obviously he had this reputation as, as a hard sort of party, it goes back to the, the Pete Doherty thing. Ultimately the fun stops with these things. And I know there were sort of interviews with people around him yesterday basically saying that his latter years were really very unhappy because of his poor quality health caused by the way that he had lived. But um, 
I, you know, just I, I think that he contributed a lot to musical life. Everyone knows who he is, I think, but it, either because of Fairy Tale or New York or because of the Pogues. And like you say, an interesting man with so many contradictions about him. And I love Fairy Tale of New York because even though, you know, obviously people know it as this kind of, you know, quite a cheery song. The first half of the story in and and even some of the lyrics in the faster bit, telling a story about the Irish Catholic immigrant into into America experience. And like you say, there were real parts of his identity that I think get overlooked. So R.I.P. Shane McGowan, you really did make a contribution. I remember um, the writer Lynn Barber uh, telling oh, yes, a story. Excellent. Yes. excellent interviewer. Um, not not a wild living lady, I think it would be fair to say, Lynn Barber, but a uh, very good interview. Um, when to interview Shane McGowan for, uh, I think, one of the Sunday paper magazines mm. times, Observer, I'm not sure, I can't quite remember. Anyway, mm. she went along to this um, hotel in London to interview him, and Shane McGowan... Um, met her in the, in, in this in this sort of suite and decided mm. to sort of uh that they would both have loads and loads of i think gin and vodka uh for mm. the evening. and um during the evening as they uh, drank more and more and lim barber not used to this sort of level of drinking mm. she found herself um being drawn into this idea that uh, shane mcgowan had that she would be the getaway driver while they he went out and he would go and <laughs> rob a post office. Wow! And while she would be like um, keeping the, the car, car running yeah. outside, somehow uh, they they managed not to do that. But went down to the, <laughs> probably went, for the best. I feel went down, yeah went down to the bar of this hotel and uh, carried on drinking. And as I say, Lim Barber not mm. renowned for this sort of behaviour. No. And as sort of like midnight, 1am, 2am struck, she decided she would sort of totter off to her room mm. and you know, managed to sort of get into bed and collapse. And when she came down the next morning for breakfast, Shane McGowan was still at the bar. I'm not uh, surprised. From the previous night, still <laughs> drinking. Vodka and gin. Um, I'm and surprised l- that he lasted as long as he did, really. His constitution well, must have been quite something. You're right. I mean, it's easy, to, I suppose, to blame his intake of drink and drugs for cutting mm. his life short. But, you know, it's like you say, it's easy to sort of rise up pompously on that. But we all have to take our own path. And only yeah. Shane himself, I think, will know whether the booze and drugs are a matter of regret for him. Certainly, yes. uh, you're right. He declined physically. So he had a fall in 2014. Yes, he was kind of, I think, sustained in these last years by his Catholic beliefs and by Mm. uh, the care of his wife Victoria, who's been with, um, not married to, but certainly been as a couple for thirty-five years. So it's incredible, uh, really. Yeah. So in the end, quite the journey from crazed nights at the Roxy in Nashville to a lifetime achievement award presented by Ireland President Michael Higgins a couple of years ago, and I thought. I bring in a final quote from the Irish Times uh, obituary. He was an inspirational figure and the timeless nature of his songs and their preoccupation with the human experience. Yes. They will resonate with generations to come, which I think is a lovely. I hope so. That is lovely. I really hope that's true. Thanks very much for listening this week. Good to have you there. Thank you for having me in my slight cough. My apologies. Now, unless Daryl Hall takes out a court order, you <laughs> should be able to hear Juliet on the radio this week. Indeed, and I might have to play all the notes uh, to remember them to use the phrase again in happier times. But uh, yes, smooth sailing from 7 9 p.m on uh, noiseboxradio.com and Lost the Words, the instrumental shows, which goes out 8 to 9 on Thursdays evenings. But you can also hear that, sorry, excuse me, on Tuesdays from 11 till midday. What inspired you to pick our closing track this week, Juliet? Well, so that's an interesting question, Sir T, and in true politician style, I'm very glad you asked me that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So I... Um, went to a quiz outing, um, a quiz tournament in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago. And the format for sort of non-quizzing, for ordinary people, certainly, for non-quizzers, for sane people, as I like to call for them. For the hoi um, Indeed, yes, for people that actually do, you know, that, that have normal, <laughs> you know, sort of okay lives. Um, it follows a university challenge format in that you are reading out, it's a buzzer quiz, and you're reading out a question and 
the initial clues are a bit harder than the than the questions and than the end of the question. So I've been listening to this song all week because I read this question out about it. This is written by the team from the Online Quiz League. I'm not sure which individual wrote this, but I can credit the Online Quiz League writers. And I will read this question out. Um, I won't give you the opportunity to buzz if that's okay. You can buzz at home if you want and then see if you're right at the end. But um, I will read this introduction out now. This song's lyrics include a punning reference to producer Ross Cullum and mention its executive producer being at the wheel. RAF's song We've Got to Live Together uses the pizzicato riff from this song, which altered the Roland D50's pizzagogo patch to create a new age sound. The video for this song features the singer in a flowery landscape as a series of painted stills, whilst its lyrics have been likened to the itinerary for an expensive gap year, featuring locations like Palau and Cebu. This track was taken from the album Watermark and was its singer's first UK hit after leaving Clanad. Sometimes certain subtitles sail away, which 1988 number one by Enya is known for a South American river. This is Orinoco Flow.
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs> <laughs>